Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, it's, uh, well, it, it's not meteorologically speaking yet. The beginning of summer, the solstice is a few, uh, few days away. But certainly in the United States, after Memorial Day weekend, for all intents and purposes, I, I guess some schools may still be in session. I can't imagine why. But it, for, for a lot of people, I think, spiritually, let's talk spiritually for a moment, can we? Uh, it seems to be summer already. It's, uh, it's definitely hot enough to be summer in New Orleans. And in Britain, it's been hot enough to be summer all during the month of May. But they gotta they gotta get their summer early because winter's winter's right behind. So it is that season when people strip and uh, show themselves for who they really are, at least physically, and maybe more. Uh, it's it's uh, been noticeable that there's been to sort of twist a phrase a kind of uh, endless simmer going on in this country in terms of the public discourse and the the conflation of telling it like it is or saying what you really think with schoolyard taunts. Of course, a certain (laughs) president of the United States uh, turned that from a simmer into a a hard-boil. I guess that would make him, in uh, detective parlance, a hard-boiled dick. But... This week, we saw two examples of it. Uh, one was inarguably racist. We'll, t- we'll talk about both of these in the Apologies of the Week, but still, right here at the top of the, sh- right here at the, top of the show, while you're still paying attention, um, one was irremediably racist. The other was, was just name-calling. And uh, I, I just want to, as a, as a person who toils in the comedy vineyards, in the, satir- in, in the satire back 40. I just want to pledge to you, ladies and gentlemen, that if ever on this program you hear me refer to a public figure as a um, a feckless scathead or a uh, a pathetic dipscat or a scumbucket, I will not try to dignify that by calling it a joke. You have my word. Hello, welcome to the show. It's summertime, summertime, some, some, summertime, 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 summertime. Well, shut them books and throw them away. Say goodbye to dull school days. Look alive and change your ways. It's summertime. Well, no more studying history and no more reading geography and no more Every 
Summertime, summertime, some, some, summertime, 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 summertime. It's summertime. Or not, from the edge of America, from the home of the homeless. I'm Harry Shearer welcoming you to this edition of the show. And why wait? Why why prolong the delay for this, especially this week? It's the Apologies of the Week. And what a week. We're so sorry. And what apologies. Let's start up north in our good neighbor Canada, eh? And the province of Alberta. Premier Rachel Notley has formally apologized for that province's role in something called the 60s Scoop. This happened in Australia, too. I'll explain what it was. Survivors say that it doesn't close the book on one of Canada's darkest episodes. It gets dark up there early. They say it does open a new chapter of reconciliation and healing. We all need more healing, don't we? We are sorry, Notley said in the state, legis- the provincial legislature this week, as survivors sat in the gallery, some wiping away tears. For the loss of family, stability of love, we are sorry. For the loss of identity, language, and culture, we are sorry. For the loneliness, the anger, the confusion, the frustration, we are sorry. For the government practice that left you, indigenous people, estranged from your families and your communities and your history, we are sorry. And we are giving you all free 23 and me. No, didn't say that. For this trauma, this pain, this suffering, alienation, and sadness, we are sorry. To all of you, I am sorry. Uh, unquote. Here's what the scoop was from the 1950s just to the 1980s, just three decades 20,000 indigenous children think of the children, were seized from their birth families in Canada and relocated to non-indigenous homes just to strip them of their language, traditions, and family ties, you see. The apprehensions peaked in the 1960s, giving rise to the term 60s scoop, as in scoop up the kids. Alberta becomes the second province to acknowledge its role and to seek to make amends. Former Manitoba Premier Greg Selinger apologized on behalf of that province way back in 2015. Any other provinces want to step up? And as I say, same thing happened in Australia. Fortunately, we didn't treat our indigenous people that way here in the U.S. Samantha B. apologized this week, as you know, for having used a vulgar epithet to describe Ivanka Trump on her TBS show, saying she'd crossed a line and wasn't going to cross back. TBS also issued an apology. Samantha B. put the B in TBS, and TBS put the BS in TBS, issuing an apology but taking no disciplinary action against the late-night host. The uh, insult, in case you missed it, or the the millions of inches and minutes devoted to it, included a crude reference to uh, part of the female anatomy and caused a furor made more intense because the remark came just a day after Roseanne's tweet, which we'll get to in a moment. B insulted Miss Trump toward the end of a nearly seven-minute segment devoted to the issue of migrant children. Chock full of laughs. 
appearing on the screen, but in the background was a photograph of Miss Trump holding one of her children, which uh, Ivanka had posted on social media early in the week. B described Miss Trump's posting of the photo as oblivious, given that the topic of migrant families was prominently in the news. Let me just say one mother to another, do something about your dad's immigration practices, B added, before making use of the epithet. The studio audience gasped, according to the New York Times, before breaking into cheers. Somehow they forgot to laugh, because it was a joke. Continuing to address Ms. Trump, Ms. B advised her to put on something tight and low-cut and tell her father to stop it, and making use of another profanity, which the New York Times describes as an obscenity, because they don't have copy editors anymore. I would like to sincerely apologize to Ivanka Trump and to my viewers for using an expletive on my show to describe her last night, said B's statement. In its own statement, TBS said Ms. B had taken the right course of action by apologizing for the vile and inappropriate language. These words should not have been aired, the statement continued. It was our mistake, too, and we regret it. They failed to point out that cable is not regulated by the FCC. Speaking of cable, after months of scrutiny and questions surrounding her now-shuttered blog, MSNBC's weekend host Joy Reid offered an unconditional apology this week saying she's a better person today than when she wrote a number of incendiary blog posts more than a decade ago. There is no joy in Reedville. While I published my blog, starting in 2005, I wrote thousands of posts in real time on the issues of the day. There are things I deeply regret and I'm embarrassed by, things I would have said differently in issues where my position has changed. Today I'm sincerely apologizing again. I'm sorry for the collateral damage and pain this is causing individuals and communities caught in the crossfire, she added. Statement didn't include any mention of her previous claim in April that a number of the posts on her blog were uh, slipped in by hackers. She offered up that explanation after a Twitter user found a number of anti-gay posts on the blog. It's unclear if Reed is now accepting responsibility for all the material on the blog. MSNBC declined to comment about the status of her hacking claims, but it did issue its own statement indicating the network is standing by the host. Just this very week, BuzzFeed reported on another inflammatory entry in the now-closed blog, The Reed Report. It was a post that included a photoshopped image of Senator John McCain's head on the body of the shooter in the 2007 Virginia Tech massacre. Mm -hmm. Earlier in the week, BuzzFeed broke news about a 2006 post in which Reed promoted the 9-11 conspiracy film Loose Change. McCain's daughter... Megan McCain called the blog post about him disgusting and disgraceful. Says Reed now, to be clear, I have the highest respect for Senator McCain as a public servant and patriot and wish him and his family the best. I've reached out to Megan McCain and will continue to do so, said Reed, who continues to reach out. I believe she concluded the totality of my work attests to my ideals, and I continue to grow every day. I guess MSNBC is going to have to get her a bigger desk. And then there's Roseanne, who attacked former President Obama Vice White House advisor Valerie Jarrett in a since-deleted tweet alleging that she was the product of uh, a union between the Muslim Brotherhood and uh, an ape. Muslim Brotherhood and Planet of the Apes had a baby equals VJ she wrote, using Jarrett's initials. Shortly after the tweet that she said it was a joke, she issued another tweet, an apology, 
I apologize to Valerie Jarrett and to all Americans. I'm truly sorry for making a bad joke about her politics and her looks. I should have known better. Forgive me. My joke was in bad taste, unquote. She also said she was leaving Twitter, a, uh, a statement whose veracity lasted for about 12 hours before she issued her own series of tweet storms. Oh, yes, her show was canceled, in case you haven't heard. Don't be looking for Roseanne next year on ABC. The top-ranking official at the National Park Service apologized to the agency's employees Friday for behaving in an inappropriate manner in a public hallway earlier this year. P. Daniel Smith, named to the post in January, apologized both to employees who witnessed the behavior and the rest of the staff in an email obtained by the Hill newspaper. Quote, as a leader, I must hold myself to the highest standard of behavior in the workplace. I take my responsibility to create and maintain a respectful collegial work environment very seriously. Moving forward, I promise to do better. Unquote. Smith, an employee anonymously complained to his boss, Secretary of the Interior, Ryan Zinke, that he or she, anonymous, witnessed Smith grabbing his own genitalia in a hallway at the headquarters of the Interior Department, saying he grabbed his crotch and his penis and acted out as though he were urinating on the wall. This was reported by the Washington Post a couple months ago. The Post said it wasn't clear to the employee whether or not he intended the gesture to be sexual. This was referred to the Office of Inspector General, which took it up. Smith said his email, the OIG, completed its investigation. He didn't say what the outcome was. I was overheard recounting an experience in Alaska while having a hallway conversation in the headquarters offices, he told his employees. I hope that my mistake and this apology are a lesson for leaders and employees at every level of the National Park Service. Workplace culture is our shared responsibility. We must conduct ourselves in a manner that reflects the great pride we all have for the extraordinary parks and programs we represent. Unquote Smith, spokesman of the department, said his email speaks for itself. No further comment. The incident came as the Park Service is on a years-long mission to crack down on rampant sexual harassment and assault among its ranks, particularly in remote areas like Grand Canyon National Park. 38% of Park Service employees had experienced sexual harassment or another form of discrimination, according to a survey just last year. I don't recall Harvey Weinstein ever visiting a national park, but that's just me. Dayline Las Vegas, the punk rock band NoFX has apologized for the insensitive comments it made on stage in Vegas about the victims of the October 1st shooting there. Cell phone video of a festival performance obtained by TMZ showed the lead singer of the group, Fat Mike, talking about the shooting with his band on stage. We played a song about Muslims and we didn't get shot. Hooray, he yelled on stage. I guess you only get shot in Vegas if you're in a country band, one of his members, band members replied. That sucked, but at least they were country fans and not funk, punk rock fans, Fat Mike said. The crowd booed. <laughs> Fat Mike defended himself. You were all thinking it. Did I offend somebody? I can't effing believe it. Unquote. NOFX has become notorious for trying to be edgy. It's like Fox. Hey, NOFX is an anagram for Foxen. But a lot of people said the band's members' comments in Vegas crossed a major line. Since the performance had lost an endorsement from a uh, craft brewing company, and some of Fat Mike's opportunities to perform have been revoked, the band sat out an apology. I can't sleep. No one in my band can, the statement read. What we said in Vegas was scatty and insensitive, and we were all embarrassed by our remarks. So we decided we will all get together to discuss and write an in-depth, sincere, and honest apology because that's what the people we offended and hurt deserved. Unquote the apology, which some fans criticized 
for being politically incorrect. You can't win. You just can't win. Unless you drink Fat Mike's favorite craft beer. Oh, no. By the way, between Roseanne and Fat Mike, is it is it okay to be fat shaming again? Because And Dateline Dublin for decades, Irish society stigmatized unwed mothers, pressuring them to give up their newborns, often in shadowy adoptions. Now the Irish government, after years of inaction, has begun pulling away the veil, so to speak. This week it apologized after an inquiry into what some activists fear was once common, falsifying birth certificates to make it appear that adoptive uh, parents were the birth parents because of the stigma of single parenthood in Ireland. The inquiry into just a single adoption agency found that at least 126 children were affected. Many, now in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, have no idea they were adopted. Their, idea, their identities, their heritage, any idea of who they are and where they came from, you don't realize how, many, how fundamental these things are unless you don't have them, said a children's advocate. That's why there's 23, no, sorry. Rights groups believe many more cases have yet to be discovered. Speaking in Parliament, Prime Minister Leo Varadkar said the revelation opened another dark chapter in Irish social history. It was his government's priority to contact all those concerned and inform them of what it knew about the circumstances of their birth. Quote, what, we, what was done was wrong. What was done robbed children, our fellow citizens of their identity. It was an historic wrong that we must face up to. And again, on behalf of the government, I'm very sorry for it. But look at the Canadians. No, he didn't say that. The falsely recorded adoptions identified so far were among 13,000 arranged between 1946 and 1969 by an adoption society run by the Sisters of Charity. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, copyrighted feature of this broadcast that leads almost inexorably to this. Namely, News of the Godly. Prosperity gospel televangelist Jesse Duplantis told his followers that if Jesus were to defend, descend from heaven and uh, set foot on 21st century earth, he would probably pass on riding the back of a donkey. Quote, he'd be on an airplane preaching the gospel all over the world. Duplantis believes Jesus wouldn't settle for 30 inches of leg room or getting patted down by PSA. Nor would Jesse. Duplantis says he needs roughly $54 million to help him efficiently spread the gospel, because that's the key about the gospel. It has to be spread efficiently. To as many people as possible, he's asked the Lord and hundreds of thousands of his followers across the world for just such a plane, like a Falcon 7X, a private jet that nears the sound barrier, but also has noise-limiting acoustic technology. Because, you know, the noise for a preacher. He's the latest aircraft-seeking preacher to draw raised eyebrows and outright condemnation from critics, according to the Seattle Times. But this is not the first time Duplantis has been enmeshed in the preacher-private plane debate. The Falcon 7X would be his ministry's fourth jet, all paid for with cash from free will gifts and offerings. He already has an answer for non-believers and critics who want to know why exactly his ministry requires a luxury jet. We believe in God for a brand new Falcon 7X so we can go anywhere in the world one stop, he told people on This Week with Jesse, his video podcast. Now people say, can't you go with this one? He said, pointing to a picture of the plane he uses, yes, but I can't go at one stop. And if I can do it one stop, I can fly for a lot cheaper because I have my, old f- my own fuel farm. 
That's what you want your preacher to have, his own fuel farm. And that's what's been a blessing of the Lord, unquote. Duplantis founded Jesse Duplantis Ministries. I don't know how he came up with the name. It includes a weekly television program that reached 106 million U.S. households, according to his Amazon author biography. Well, who would argue with that? It's his mission to reach every soul of the 7 billion people that now inhabit the earth, according to his biography. He preaches the prosperity gospel, which says God shows favor by rewarding the faithful with earthly riches. Thank you, God. Giving ministry, uh, giving money to pastors and their ministries, leaders say, is a sort of investment. And prosperity gospel preachers have encouraged their flocks to invest heavily in aviation. Three years ago, televangelist Creflo Dollar, there's a clue, was widely mocked for starting Project G650, a means of getting a state-of-the-art Gulfstream 650 of his own, financed by his followers. According to the Washington Post, Dollar said he needs one of the most luxuriant private jets made today in order to share the gospel. The campaign was widely ridiculed online. Dollar never made it to the waiting list, which consisted mainly of billionaires, unlike Dollar. Kenneth Copeland, another prosperity gospel adherent who has appeared on screen with Duplantis, announced that his ministry had purchased a Gulfstream 5 jet that probably cost millions. The announcement showed him wearing a bomber jacket in front of a cleaning white, gleaming white plane. Glory to God, it's ours, the website says. The Gulfstream 5 is in our hands. But the ministry needed more, it told followers. The plane was an exceptional value but needed another $2.5 million in upgrades. The ministry also needed to build a new hangar, buy special maintenance equipment, and lengthen its runway. Then he prayed on camera for God to bless contributors. The world is in such a shape, we can't get there without this, Copeland said in a YouTube video of his private aircraft. We've got to have this. The mess that the airlines are in today, I would have to stop. I'm being very conservative. At least 75 to 80, more than like 90% of what we're doing, because you can't get there from here. That's why we're on that airplane. We can talk to God. Unquote. Copeland said he used to travel with Oral Roberts, who flew commercial, and it got to the point that it was agitating his spirit, people coming up to him, and then wanting to pray over them. You can't manage that today, this dope-filled world, and get in a long tube with a bunch of demons? I know the feeling, sir. No, I don't. Now to Australia. Years after he had been admitted to practice as a lawyer, John Ellis decided to exercise his legal right to sue the Catholic Church, according to ABC News Australia. As an altar boy, he had been abused by a pedophile priest. Now he sought damages. But he ultimately failed because the church successfully argued it did not legally exist as its assets were held in a trust and that was protected from legal action. His name was unwittingly shackled to the method the church had used to avoid the legal action. It's been known since as the Ellis defense. This week, more than 16 years later, the government of the state of Victoria in Australia passed a law closing that legal loophole. By taking away the legal defense they have, that puts people in a much stronger position. It puts the church on the same footing as any other entity or organization in society. That's all we've been asking for says Ellis. The new law marks a significant shift for survivors of clergy abuse who until now have had to rely on the goodwill of the church to nominate a legal entity like a bishop who would agree to be sued. Now, 
religious groups must nominate a defendant with assets capable of being sued. I'm looking at you. No, I don't mean you. Speaking of Australia, Archbishop of Adelaide Philip Wilson told a court that he knew a priest, Reverend Jim Fletcher, had been sexually abusing young altar servers. He knew because they told him. He knew because they asked him for help. Now, reports the Washington Post, he's going to jail. He'll get told some other things. The Roman Catholic leader was convicted of failing to act on reports of child sex abuse. He, abuse he faces as much as two years in prison. He's the most senior Catholic leader at the age 67 to ever be charged with concealing abuse. In the courtroom, one witness testified that Reverend Jim Fletcher made him strip and kneel as he pleasured himself. He was abused at age 10, he said. He told Archbishop Wilson about it. In 1976, when he was 15, uh, actually, Wilson was a parish priest at the time. Another former altar boy said he brought his concerns to Wilson as well. Fletcher was found guilty of multiple counts of sexual assault of boys in 2004, died two years later in prison. Wilson has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. He contradicted all of those claims, saying he had never been told of the abuse. But ultimately, the judge sided with the, those who testified. The reliability of these people cannot be questioned or attacked, Judge Robert Stone said in his decision. They were people who, as a whole, were believable. The decision comes, as we've mentioned on this program, Australian Cardinal George Pell will soon, soon stand trial for allegations of historic sexual abuse. He is a top official in the church and a key ally of Pope Francis. Francis, the talking pope. Deadline Morristown, New Jersey, the Catholic order that runs an all-boys junior and senior high school with more than 500 students has settled lawsuits from five men who alleged that five monks, including a former headmaster, had sexually abused them. Six additional lawsuits are pending against the Order of St. Benedict of New Jersey and St. Mary's Abbey, which runs the school in Morris Township. Details of the settlements were not disclosed. A priest at the center of eight of the lawsuits admittedly no, sorry, allegedly admitted to having sexual encounters with about 50 boys, according to documents filed with the lawsuits. That priest, Timothy Brennan, is accused in three of the settled cases and five pending complaints. He was convicted 30 years ago of aggravated sexual contact with a 15-year-old student of the school. The abuse outlined in the suits allegedly took place while most of the victims were students at a couple of schools in New Jersey, which the order had managed in an agreement with the Newark Archdiocese. The lawsuits include accusations from 10 men and one woman. And, deadline Vatican City, Pope Francis is sending his two top sexual abuse investigators. That sounds like a new series on CBS, doesn't it? SAI, sexual abuse investigators. Back to Chile to gather more information about the crisis that hit the Catholic Church there, according to the Vatican. They will be uh, going to Osorno in southern Chile. That's the seat of a bishop. I said the seat of a bishop who has been most caught up in the scandal. A statement from the Vatican said the purpose of the trip due to start in the next few days was to move forward in the process of reparation and healing for victims of abuse. More healing, more healing. The uh, two officials prepared a 300-page report for the Pope after speaking to victims, witnesses, and other church members in Chile earlier this year. 
A couple weeks ago, all of Chile's 34 bishops offered to resign en masse. They like masse, don't they? They have it every day. After attending a crisis meeting with the Pope in the Vatican about the cover-up of sexual abuse in the South American nation, Francis hasn't announced yet which, if any, resignations he'll accept. The scandal revolves around Father Fernando Caradima, found guilty in a Vatican investigation seven years ago of abusing boys in Santiago in the 70s and 80s. Now 87 and living in a nursing home in Chile, he has always denied any wrongdoing. Victims accused the bishop of Osorno of having witnessed the abuse but doing nothing to stop it. Bishop Juan Boros, who was one of those who offered to stand down, has denied the allegations, but he has not denounced the alligators. News of the Godly, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Você viu só que amor, nunca vi coisa assim E passou, nem parou, mas olhou só pra mim Se voltar, vou atrás, vou pedir, vou falar Vou dizer que o amor foi feitinho pra dar Olha, é como o verão Quente o coração Salta de repente para ver a menina que vem Ele vem, sempre tem, em cima no olhar E vai ver, tem que ser, nunca tem quem amar Hoje sim, diz que sim, já cansei de esperar Nem parei, nem dormi, só pensando em me dar Peço, mas você não vem bem Deixa então, falo só de céu, mas você vem. Ladies and gentlemen, we are proud to present Let Us Try, a ballad of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Let us try to stem the tide, to beautify our countryside. To try is to succeed. We've just started hurricane season, 2018. And new permanent, so-called, pumping stations along Lake Pontchartrain are now online in New Orleans. They're the final pieces of the 130-mile-long, 14 billion-in-your-money risk reduction system built 
since the flood of 2005, which was declared intact and ready to go some years ago. Quote, these are some of the most modern and technologically advanced pumps, not only in, in the United States, but actually the entire world. Actually the entire world, said the uh, head of the flood, flood Protection Authority. New pumps are ready to go at the three outfall canals, which acted as superhighways for storm surge to inundate New Orleans, breaching levees, actually undermining levees. Contrary to what WWL-TV reports that they were breached, they were not breached, they were undermined, and flooding 80% of the city. The new pump station structures are designed to block storm surge while continuing to pump storm water out of the canals into Lake Pontchartrain during a hurricane. Keep the storm surge out while pumping the rainwater from a hurricane out. Night and day difference between 2005 and today, says the commander of the Corps in New Orleans, Colonel Michael Clancy. Really, every day since Hurricane Katrina, the system has gotten better, he says. Check out what happened in 2012 during Hurricane Isaac before you buy that. The permanent pumps were built, it says here, by the Army Corps of Engineers, although they don't do their most of their own building anymore, probably contracted out. I think the 100-year flood protection can always be improved, hopefully in the years to come, says Ruthie Friedman Frierson of a um, local citizens group. As I think I pointed out last week, 100-year protection was the minimum required for citizens of New Orleans to qualify for flood insurance. The previous system had been supposedly built to a much higher standard to protect against the maximum probable hurricane, which occurs much less frequently than once every 100 years. These permanent pumps have been on drawing boards for many, many years, says Sandy Rosenthal of Levies.org, another civic group in New Orleans. A lot of work has gone behind them. A lot of engineering know-how has gone into them. I feel confident that when it comes time, these permanent pump stations will do the job. Unquote. The Corps of Engineers must now dismantle and remove the temporary pumps and pump stations built after, right after Katrina, put online by June 2006, which had, according to a whistleblower from inside the Corps, severe design defects, removing those pumps, which were originally described to Congress as built to last for 50 years, but then were described as temporary when the problems became evident. Removing them could take up to three years or more, but let them try. United States Army Corps of Engineers. And now. Our house is a very, very, very smart house. British homes are vulnerable to a staggering level of corporate surveillance through commonly internet-enabled devices, according to a new investigation reported by The Guardian. Guess they're not listening to this program if they're staggered. Researchers found that a range of connected appliances, increasingly popular features of the so-called smart home, send data to their manufacturers and third-party companies, in some cases failing to keep the information secure. One Samsung smart TV connected to more than 700 distinct Internet addresses in 15 months? No, 
15 minutes. The investigation by the Consumer Watchdog Witch magazine, it's like Consumer Reports in Britain, found television selling viewing data to advertisers, toothbrushes with access to smartphone microphones, and security cameras that could be hacked to let others watch and listen to people in their homes. Why would you want it? The findings have alarmed privacy campaigners who warn that consumers are unknowingly building a terrifying world of corporate surveillance. Or do they know? Quote, smart devices are increasingly being exposed as soft surveillance devices. Hmm, soft surveillance. That feels so soft. That owners have too little control of, says the director of Big Brother Watch. People are now, he says, she says, being subjected to invasive and unnecessary corporate snooping on an unprecedented scale. She continues, the very notion of a smart home is one of ambient surveillance and constant recording, which will without doubt lead people to modify their behavior over time. If this current direction is continued, we will become a society of watched consumers subjected to the most granular, pervasive, and inescapable surveillance. Unquote. Which magazine bought more than three thousand pounds, that'd be five thousand dollars worth of smart home equipment, set it up in a lab. They were monitoring the monitors, surveilling the surveillers to see how much data was being collected and transferred. As well as the manufacturers themselves, more than 20 other companies were on the receiving end of data transfers. Your social networks, your third-party monitoring services, your advertising and marketing data brokers. Because your data is their product. Other devices, not the Samsung TV that addressed 700 addresses in 15 minutes, uh, didn't transmit much data, but unnecessarily asked for it anyway, creating the possibility of breaches down the line. Ooh, that sounds painful. A Philips Bluetooth toothbrush <sighs> links up with a smartphone app to monitor brushing habits, frequency, and technique, but the app also asks for location information. Where is your mouth? Which Philips said was used only to find a local company store and microphone access, which Philip said wasn't used at all. You just hear a lot of buzzing. <laughs> Some devices connected, collected only the data they should, but then failed to keep it secure. The magazine tested a security camera sold under the Le Geek brand, or IE Geek brand, found that a security flaw in the app that meant the company could access usernames and passwords for other cameras. If they misused that access, they could have seen live video feeds from other people's homes and even talk to those users which has found other such flaws which are still live the managing director of which home products and services said the investigation showed the downside of a digital home quote smart home gadgets and devices can bring huge benefits to our daily lives but our investigation shows they could collect vast amounts of data about us he told the guardian so which will it be, huge or vast? Companies should be clear, he says, about how they're collecting and using data. <laughs> yeah. And ensure customers feel in control about what they're sharing without having to trawl through impenetrable terms and conditions. How about oblique or opaque terms and conditions? Which suggested it may be worth thinking twice about intrusive monitoring connected to paid products, particularly when dumb devices are frequently cheaper and just as useful. 
but they're not smart. And we, we just want to be smart, don't we? That's why we have a smart house. Ain't it? And now? I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, sir, you. Microplastics. Think about it. Will you think of that? Yes, I will. Enough said. Microplastics, ladies and gentlemen, are now reportedly involved in um, damaging coral reefs, preventing them from um, obtaining the nutrition they need to, uh, you know, like live. And uh, we know that microplastics have been found as a detritus from the uh, non-natural clothing we might wear. Coming out of the washing machine, the fibers just get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller after they're flushed out of the into the drains and into the oceans. Some cosmetics have already gotten rid of the microbeads, as they're called, that uh, generate microplastics in the ocean. Among those that I don't think yet have um, gotten rid of all the microplastic generating chemicals in their makeup would be sunscreens. Have a nice summer, everybody. Some kind of fun And the living wouldn't be too hard Then they started saying There's a hole in the sky That's letting in all of the ozone Now the beach and the park Everything nearby Became a really scary no-go zone Yeah, we were told to protect our skin We had to let the sunscreen Sink right in Summer didn't have to end SPF, give me SPF Slather it starting in May SPF, creamy SPF Gotta spray if you wanna play Gotta spray if you wanna play Some of the tiny plastic chunk is from sunscreen rubbing off our own skins. So you gotta be a loser or some kind of punk to not know this is how the end begins. The end begins. Now.
Now they're telling us the sun can't be screened If the ever-loving ocean is gonna be cleaned 50, 40, 30, 25 Summer's just a bummer now 20, 15, 10 And then it's gone Wipe it off your nose and bow SPF, keep your SPF The world is more important than your pores SPF, forget the SPF Keep the summer alive till the umbrellas arrive Let's have fun indoors
now, ladies and gentlemen, news of our dear friend, the Adam. Clean, safe, too cheap to meet. Safe, cheap, too cheap to meet. Cheap, safe, too safe to meet. Safe, safe, too safe to meet. The cost of building new nuclear plants, power plants, not the bomb-making ones, nearly 20% higher than expected due to delays. Who would have expected that? New analysis of the history of nuclear, nuclear power plant projects shows since 2010 delays have contributed almost 20% of the costs. Delays, which can run into years or even decades, you got a decade on you, increase the cost compared with older projects and are often overlooked when new projects are planned. Whoa-oh. The authors say these extra costs need to be properly assessed when considering new nuclear projects. They say nuclear projects are more like mega projects, such as large dams, which require more rigorous financial assessments due to their high uncertainty and risk. The study was published in the journal Energy Policy. I read it for the ads. The authors also suggest that because these delay costs make nuclear projects high-risk, Decision-makers might instead focus on more low-risk, low-carbon technologies. Your wind, your solar. You think? When assessing the cost of new nuclear projects, decision-makers often use, quote, overnight construction costs, which assume the project is built, is built on time. I, I don't know a project of any kind about which you can make that assumption. But, you know, nuclear plant, sure, usually within five years, they think. However, the lead time, the time between the initiation of the project and completion, can cause significant extra costs. The research team was from Imperial College London and uh, a couple of Brazilian universities. They looked at total costs of nuclear projects for the last 50 years, including delay costs. Usually, as technologies mature much like people, and experiences gained in construction, costs come down. However, the team found that for nuclear, there's been a blip in the learning curve. Ma'am, I'm sorry to tell you, but uh, your husband has a blip in his learning curve, with costs currently increasing, especially for projects since 2010. Lead author from the Center for Environmental Policy at Imperial College said, nuclear projects are actually becoming more complex to carry out, inducing delays and higher costs. Safety and regulatory considerations play heavily into this, particularly in the wake of the 2011 Fuk accident in Japan, unquote. Like it's made them more concerned about safety or something. The analysis is one of the first to assess full financial costs of building nuclear projects, not just the overnight costs. And we'll be overnighting this study to you if you request it and pray. And Toshiba Corporation said this week it is scrapping a plan to build two nuclear reactors at a U.S. power plant after long delays in which it failed to find investors because of sharply lower electricity rates, magic of the market, and increased global regulation, the dead hand of government. Toshiba, the Japanese company's wholly owned U.S subsidiary, Nuclear Energy Corporation, reached an agreement in March 2008, why that's a decade ago and more, to build the third and fourth reactors for energy 
NRG Energy Incorporated South Texas project. The plant already has two 1,200-megawatt reactors. NRG, in 2011, abandoned and wrote off its investment in the project, citing U.S. regulatory uncertainty in the wake of Fook. The project is part of Nuclear Innovation North America, or NINA, which also in the financial industry stood for no income, no assets. But that's a coincidence. That's a nutty coincidence. No investors have expressed an interest in participation, Toshiba said in a statement, noting the project had, quote, ceased to be financially viable. But it's still such a damn good idea. Clean, no longer cheap, too safe, safer to meter than ever, maybe, our friend the atom. And now quickly, news of the warm, a call for policymakers to begin planning for the inevitable disappearance of glacier-fed rivers. is a highlight of the no-holds-barred University of Alberta-led accounting of the health of Canada's mountains. How are your mountains, eh? The State of the Mountains report is a collection of expert summaries written to raise awareness about the ways a changing climate is transforming the alpine. Mountains are sentinels for larger global climate change says a mountain researcher and historian, Zach Robinson. They're sentinels for larger global change. The change is alarming, but I'm optimistic because mountains are adored by people everywhere. That's hopeful because people are paying attention to these types of things. A shocking example of the ravages of climate change, the report recounts the infamous Slims River piracy event in southwestern Yukon a couple years ago, a major source of water for Kluan Lake, the Slims effectively ran dry after its glacier receded to the point that its dwindling meltwaters began flowing in a different direction. The lake was three feet lower than its previous record low. One stark example of a very big drainage system that utterly and permanently reorganized itself in a single season, said Robinson. Kluwine Lake is a massive lake that isn't being fed any longer. Seeing its levels dropping, what does that do to the ecosystem and the communities on that lake that depend on that water? It's the kind of event one of the researchers says is going to happen again and again. Glaciologists predict the Rocky Mountains will lose 80% of their glaciated terrain over the next 50 years. But that's 50 years. We'll, we'll all be... The stored legacy of water in glaciers is something we've depended on to feed the big mountain rivers that spread out across the prairies or the salmon rivers on the west coast or feed the Arctic. That's going to change, said the researcher, adding coming water shortages lead a list of pending extreme weather calamities, including flooding and wildfires. But you know, as long as you've got oceans, you really don't need rivers. As a warming climate invites the destructive southern pine beetle to expand its northern range, the cooler weather in this new habitat can potentially increase the lethality of the pine beetle's assault on trees. That's according to a new study out of Dartmouth College. Demonstrates how climate change can create a destructive one-two punch for forests that are already under attack and another mechanism by which weather can influence the abundance of insect pests. Now, we heard a couple weeks ago Germany was saying climate change was causing a, a shortage of insects, but maybe it's just the pests that are increasing. I'm confused. And I'm, it's my show. In the study, the Dartmouth research team shows how the colder fall and winter temperatures encountered in northern latitudes influences the growth and development of immature southern pine beetles grow up, leading to a more synchronized emergence of adults once the weather warms. That behavior raises the risk for pine forests because the emerging beetles kill trees by attacking en masse. 
like the uh, priests. The more beetles that are active at the same time, the better the chance they will overwhelm tree defenses and produce even more beetles for the next generation of attacks. Bet on the pine beetles, ladies and gentlemen. News of the Warm, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. That's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time or whatever time you choose to listen if you're listening on demand. But it's right here at your audio device of choice, be it radio or podcast or, you know, streaming through your dentures. And it would be just like not wearing dentures if you agreed to join with me then. Would you already? Thank you very much. Uh huh. A tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and exile in Hawaii desks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halston and to Jenny Lawson at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's program. The email address for this broadcast, your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts. You can wear them, uh, you know, 4th of July. And the playlist of the music heard here on, that's all available at harryshare.com. And um, I'll be tweeting some tasteless jokes on Twitter at harryshare.com. No, I won't. Yes, I will. No, I won't. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy radio network. So long. From the home of the homeless.